Here we are in our last episode of season two, our season two wrap up. And before we even get started, you know, Brad, this has just been so fun to do this season with you. I've really enjoyed it. You've been a great processing partner as we've explored AI. Likewise, friend. <laughs> and I got you a gift just to celebrate completing season two. Did you get the gift? I did. And for listeners who might appreciate the reminder, we live in opposite parts of the country. So John very mysteriously and vaguely told me to anticipate a box from Amazon that I am not supposed to open until now. But I told my wife, hey, don't open boxes from Amazon because John sent me something. He's been really weird about it. And she liberty of opening it and then gift bagging it. So I've got this bag right here. Awesome. Uh, Your wife is awesome. So she is. She's fantastic. So all right, man, open it up. Okay. Okay. Um, oh, God. <laughs> okay. This is, uh, this is a T-shirt. Um, wow. This is pretty fantastic. It is a... Oh, this is way too appropriate. Um, it is a company corporate T-shirt for the company Skynet. <laughs> uh, neural Net-Based Artificial Intelligence, Cyberdyne Systems Corporation. And um, yes, that is hilarious. I have mentioned Skynet as a trope for this conversation in this season so many times. We have, we have worn out that Terminator <laughs> 2 joke so oh. much. I thought it would only be appropriate to gift you something that you could wear around and continue to wear that joke out. Thank you. Um, you have outdated me, John, and that is saying something. I'm, I'm impressed. Well done. Awesome. <laughs> when our post everything world has turned life upside down how do you even know which end is up if you're committed to a community or a cause greater than yourself you don't have the luxury of checking out or the freedom to burn out it's not enough to just keep surviving we need to thrive again this is post everything a podcast about remapping culture and rethinking leadership in a liminal age so the purpose of today's episode is to wrap up season two and really look at what we've learned over the past season, over the past episodes. I think for me, just even starting off, one of the big things that's changed for me is my posture towards artificial intelligence. I came into the season sort of skeptical that this was even a thing that we should be focused on. It felt <laughs> to me kind of like a little hype. You know, I was resistant. Brad twisted my arm and convinced me this is what we should do. But I think now the big thing for me is I realize how important it is to engage this topic, to have an understanding and to accept that it's here. And it's going to change a lot of things than it already has. So I think two key words for me in terms of posture are being willing to engage AI on some level and then figuring out how to steward it. And I think what's key for us as we think about engaging and stewarding AI is doing that through the lens of what the theme of our podcast is, which is remapping culture and rethinking leadership in a liminal age. Brad, as you think about that, where do you want to jump in in terms of what you've learned from this season? Yeah, I mean, I think on the remapping culture front, I very much 
keep going back to the question that we asked at the beginning. And I don't think I realized how important this question was because I think it felt just very natural to ask the question, but I don't think I realized how much it was coming from a, a very real deficit of doing it, which is how do we think critically about this? Mm. How do we yeah. think critically about AI? And I very much learned throughout this season that there are kind of two dominant postures toward tech in general but AI specifically that you see kind of saturating the conversation. And it's a false dichotomy, and we'll explain why in a second. But these postures are poles in the discussion. Determinism and pragmatism, right? Mm -hmm. If you are a determinist, you are convinced that the technology itself determines and directs the user's ends. So you actually aren't exercising agency. It's minimizing your agency. And this makes your agency irrelevant. In a sense, it kind of almost replaces it. And so this is, especially with AI, because it's new, never mind how powerful it is, but because new change is sometimes very scary because we can't control it, we don't know it. But this would say that AI is destiny, right? right? And we should fear it or we should fear Skynet. Or you might be like a humanistic determinist and go in the opposite direction. It's like this is inevitable and we have to embrace it because this is how we build our utopia, Right. It minimizes our agency in the process, both for good or for bad, right? That's deterministic. That's deterministic, right? That's determinism. Pragmatism, it has a very high view of our agency when it comes to technology. And maybe you might say that where determinism minimizes agency, pragmatism multiplies it. It sees technology as a neutral tool that can be bent to whatever end the user intends and has in mind. So it would say that AI is effective. This is only going to make our lives better because we can use it for good or for ill, but we should choose to use it for good and therefore we should embrace it. And John, when we were talking about this section, I uh, accidentally- Showed your cards. Yeah, I, I showed my cards by saying that we should embrace our new overlords. That shows my bias, right? I would say I probably leaned toward a more deterministic view and a negative one at that, right? Yeah, well, it's interesting. So one way to say that is determinism says AI controls us. Pragmatism says we control AI. That's a great, yeah, mm -hmm. that's a really good way of saying that. Yeah. Which is interesting because it's so simplistic. And unfortunately, sometimes Christians and evangelicals have had a reputation of not being able to think critically, to not think in the gray, to only think in terms of black and white. So I'm curious if you can be more specific we kind of go back and forth between those two poles and postures. What are some other examples that we can think about when it comes to that sort of thing? Well, it's interesting how much the season ended up kind of being a mirror toward my own postures in a lot of ways. And I think in a lot of ways, I see in myself an overreaction to evangelicalism, right? Hmm. If we use these two poles that we just defined, right? I would say that evangelicalism as a whole is very deterministic regarding culture and especially any external culture, right? You know, rock and roll is the devil's music, you know, don't get your kids an ACDC t-shirt, right? There's kind of a fundamentalist posture there that sees culture. Like if you listen to the rock music, you're going to worship Satan. And it's this very agency less attitude toward the power of culture to shape and form us. Right. As far as technology goes, evangelicalism has been largely very pragmatic, right? Having 
smoke machines and live streaming our services. Like these are neutral means to very good and godly ends. And so when we're using technology to multiply kingdom influence and reach people, then there's no downside, right? But if you don't believe me, just think about how within the evangelical world, we talk about culture, right? When we say this is happening in culture, and even when we use the term remapping culture as part of our vision statement for this podcast, right? We probably mean the values of culture, maybe the pop <laughs> expressions of culture. We might even include media, but we probably don't think much about the vehicle that that media is communicated through, i.e. <laughs> television or radio or cable news or social media, right? Well, maybe now with social media because I won't stop talking about it, but... <laughs> My point is that it is actually pragmatism that treats technology as a mere vehicle, not a formative influence in and of itself that is in addition to, but still distinct from the content of that vehicle, right? Right. And so when we're talking about, you know, being in the world, but not of it, I think looking back after going through this season, how much we have been very blind, like the church has been very blind to how we think we can answer that question, what it means to be in the world and out of it, without considering the formative effects of technology, right? How do we have a cultural yeah. apologetic that doesn't view tech as inherently formative? I think we've just largely discounted, if not ignored, that which is probably the single most generationally potent catalyst for cultural change like, it's just crazy. We don't even think about this. In fact, there's a really great book called Generations by Jean. I think you pronounce her name Twing or Twingy. And heard of it. this is part of her thesis is the biggest generational demographic change is not just the shifting values, but even those shifting values are largely influenced and shaped by technology. By the technology accessible to that generation? Yes, yes, okay. right? It's yeah. not just the content of what we're right. teaching in schools. It's how we're teaching it. It's not just the content of news media on cable news, whether it's Fox, CNN, MSNBC, or whatever else. It's also the medium that that content is communicated through that changes things, right? Yes. All of this, yeah. it's all interrelated, right? So now, if that is the case, if evangelicalism is kind of deterministic about external culture generally, but pragmatic about the use of technology internally inside the church, then actually this has a lot of explanatory power for how we're seeing the church react to all the change of our liminal age, right? This transition period where things are shifting because evangelicals, we feel that things have shifted and many evangelicals end up doubling down on deterministic postures toward culture. Like we have to shut this out. I mean, on the left and the right, both Christian and secular, we use the language of like, this is when I was radicalized, right? That's actually talking mm -hmm. about becoming more extreme within this negative polarizing moment we're in. But the posture that we have that gets us there is when we're deterministic, right? But for the church, we do that not realizing that pragmatism was the Trojan horse that brought many of those things inside the church that we're now freaking out about, but we're ignoring the influence of technology 
and only talking about big bag culture like it's out there when it's actually already here. I mean, yeah, just social media. I won't rehash social media, but that alone is a powerful example of how it has shaped and bypassed the institutional church's natural ideological immune system and shaped and formed people more than pastors can with an hour and a half at most per week on Sunday morning, right? Yeah. So I think one of the things you're getting at, I think this was in Yuval Levin's book, A Time to Build, where he was talking about what happened in Congress when they brought television cameras into Congress. So it wasn't, yeah. it wasn't just yeah. about the culture that was created in Congress and the decisions that were made. All of a sudden, something formative shifted yeah. when they brought the television cameras into those sessions. And all of a sudden, it became performative. And then all of a sudden, the way that Congress now functions, it has been formed and shaped in a different way. It has changed. And I think what you're saying is... It's not just about keeping culture out and sort of letting technology in. If we have that posture, it's too simplistic and it's going to shape us in ways that we're actually trying to prevent it by having that sort of deterministic view against culture and pragmatic view of technology. Man, thank you for bringing up that example because it's so powerful. If we keep talking about the content that congressmen and women are saying and like we have a problem with this, but we don't deal with the technology that is streaming what they're saying into our homes and onto our phones. We are fighting upstream mm -hmm. against the tide. It's just not possible. And it's actually kind of like when you realize that is the case, who knew that a smoke filled room could actually be really good and healthy for an institution in some ways by shielding leaders from the like exposure of having to perform to an audience, they can actually process more openly and talk about how like, yeah, I'd actually be willing to compromise on this part of that bill because this thing is more important to me. And you can do that because you don't won't have constituents hearing you do that live and being like, what in the world? <laughs> no, we got to yeah. cancel that guy. You know? So yeah, yeah technology is formative and that's kind of the conclusion here, right? of right. the remapping culture part is yeah. we can't remap culture unless we actually include technology as part of culture. And we actually include technology and view it as formatively as we do culture in general. And so dude, it's crazy actually because I had a category for that with social media, I think, but I thought that was unique. But as we've been exploring how AI is going to have the potency and potential to shape us in ways that social media is laughably cute by comparison. Man, what I think I've most learned this season and what I've realized is that I have been far more of a pragmatist toward a lot of technology in ways mm -hmm. I didn't realize. And the determinism that I have toward AI and, you know, worrying about it being our overlords and not having any agency in the midst of it, I've made the opposite error of evangelicalism. Mm -hmm right? Huh. If there's a third way here, maybe we just recover a category for wisdom, right? Yeah. That has to include, and if not start with an awareness of how technology forms and shapes our agency, it shifts us, it shapes our affections, what we believe is possible, what we exert effort and agency toward. And I think wisdom is probably the biggest shift for me of like realizing how much I need to recover that across the board but in different ways because of where my biases are. Does that make sense? 
I think so. I think so. Yeah. In one sense, you're saying, so let's go back to that using the video cameras in Congress example. We're at that moment. As AI is being introduced to the common populace, so the cameras were brought into Congress, you're saying there's a moment here where we need to think deeply, use wisdom as much as possible because this is a big moment for us. And maybe say it one more time, like if you even use that metaphor, what are you rethinking for yourself? I think I am probably too pragmatic regarding technology. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're recording a podcast, you know, on a laptop. I have a second screen here so I can see our Google Docs. Like, I, <laughs> I literally have not even considered how a second screen may or may not shape and form me. Like, that's a small thing. It's not like, oh my gosh, if we're going to use our toaster, what are the formative implications of our toaster? Like, we don't have to overthink this. But it does change some things, right? We use the example of if you can Google a question, an answer to a question, readily enough that you never have to or don't think that you have to call a friend and ask like, hey, what do you think about this? Then what are we actually missing out on that we're not even aware of? we're replacing that person's experience and wisdom with an actual algorithm that says that this is the most important site or these 10 sites are the most important ones to your question. And somebody else has said that that is the case. Yeah. So yeah, I think maybe something that would be helpful for us all is to ask the question, where do I lean deterministic and where do I lean pragmatic And where might I need to shift my thinking based on how this shapes and forms me, where I may be assuming in either direction, positively or negatively, instead of asking the question of what is wise? Yeah. Yeah. So just another example of that, my mind immediately went to my friend, Pastor Danny Slavich, who I think you know from Twitter, you guys interact a little bit. But when the Apple phone came out with the picture in picture, so that you could search Instagram while watching a Netflix movie on your phone, I remember he tweeted something or said something. It was like, I'm not sure this is good for us as humans. Like, <laughs> do we need to actually be doing two things on our phone at once? You know, we're already on them enough. But I think that's the question. That's like the kind of the posture we're bringing towards this question yeah. of technology, of going, we're not even really sure where it's taking us. Maybe there's some wisdom to slow down and ask questions, which really, as I think about rethinking leadership, the other part of our theme for our podcast as a whole I've thought a lot about leading myself and leading others. Like, what does it mean not to just give myself over to this technology, Mm. but to ask deep questions? And then what does it mean to be someone or how do I be someone who leads others and maybe ask them tough questions about their use of technology? And I've really landed through this season. I don't necessarily have answers. Yeah, I think that coming through this season... I've learned more about asking good questions with the use of artificial intelligence, questions that expose tensions, questions about formation, questions about how this is shaping us. For instance, as we think about AI's ability to reproduce now images online Mm -hmm. and 
we look online for what we believe to be true. We look for online to provide us information about what's real. We need to be asking questions of ourselves and of others. How do you know that's real? The story you just saw online, the picture you just saw online that had a caption, are you sure that's real? Or why do you believe that's real? Or does it matter to you that it might not be real? I think we need to be willing to ask those questions of ourselves and of others. So epistemology matters. Yeah, like it is wild to me. Gosh, so at the time that we're recording this, it's like middle of October. Last weekend was when Hamas attacked Israel. And the cognitive dissonance and surreal experience of scrolling through a social media news feed and having these kinds of things come through side by side with dumb memes. Like the fact that those are presented equally and of equal significance and of equal priority and of equal truthfulness and reality, our perception is shaped by that digital liturgy. Ooh, I love that you just called it a digital liturgy. Uh, Yeah. I mean, a newsfeed is a, it's a church bulletin, right? Yeah. We have elements to the service and we have elements to our newsfeed and there's intentionality there, right? But like just the way technology shapes our perception, you know, John, I was actually, (laughs) I can't remember who I was talking to about this, but he asked this really good question. He was just like, how many listens do you have on your podcasts right now? I'm like, oh, I don't know. I think we're something at like a thousand unique listeners a month, which is amazing. It's awesome. Right. And he's like, so what's the largest congregation or audience you've ever preached in front of? And it's a probably around 500, give or take. Right. And he said, which is scarier? I'm like, uh, preaching in front of 500 people, which is more important preaching in front of 500 people. Why? Hmm. Right. If you base it on sheer numbers, we should have a lot more nervousness about our verbal processing on this podcast, John. Yeah. Right? I would not do this in a sermon. It feels like a greater responsibility. Yes, it's God's word and like we're doing something different than, you know, just cutting it yeah. up and, you know, processing and learning here. But I don't think about a thousand people listening to us, most of whom I have no idea who they are when we're doing this. Like, why? It's because the technology of podcasting has introduced a layer between us and an audience that disembodies that relationship and therefore shapes our perception because all knowledge is relational to some degree. Hmm. How would that not shape our epistemology? How would that not shape our spiritual health, our mental state, right? Like if you know that you are going to see somebody this coming Sunday, you're going to feel a lot less free in writing that email full of criticism of whatever you think they have or haven't done than you will if you're an anonymous account online just retweeting hate speech, for example, right? The technology itself has shaped and formed both how we perceive what is real and other people, but also the freedom that we have to exercise our agency. Yeah. And the weight that we give to something in our own heart and mind, which is an interesting category to think about. So I think epistemologically, epistemology, asking questions about knowledge and what's real, that is a big category for me in terms of leading in this new realm of AI. 
But I also think we've kind of gotten to it already, but we can unpack it a little bit more. What does leading formationally look like? So what does it look like asking questions about who we are becoming as people as we use artificial Mm. intelligence? And so, you know, we had talked about the fact that unpacking that starts with having a responsibility, having agency and agency starts with an awareness and awareness comes through slowing down and asking questions. Again, we're Mm. back to this thing of, we have these questions we want to ask more than the answers to these questions. Um, So when we think about that and we think about the use of AI, we want to ask questions around the image of God, around the Imago Dei. For instance, how is artificial intelligence aligning with the Imago Dei design in human beings? How does this expression of technology align with the cultural mandate? How does it humanize us or others? Does it have a redemptive impact on people? Or how might this technology be an expression of the Tower of Babel or a means of rebelling against the Imago Dei? How does it dehumanize others or actually expand the impact of the fall? So I just even think of like talking with Mike Whittle on one of the more recent episodes where he was Mm. saying one of the reasons that they're not doing video yet for pulpit AI. And if, if you you need to go listen to that episode, if that doesn't make any sense, but he said is because one of the things that they found is that AI is programmed to make clips go viral. And Mike's like, well, is that really what we want? Is that align with the image of God? Or is it more about conveying an entire idea? So I think Mm. he's already asking these questions. But we've talked a little bit about this in other ways. We talked about the technology that Stephen Hawking uses for his voice. Mm. So he's not able to speak and he's able to you know, type something in and then it projects his voice. And there's something about that that's beautiful and humanizing. And we joked around about Kevin Malone from The Office, who in one episode decides he doesn't like to talk. So he uses as little words as possible. Me like Brownie want eat, you know, and if Kevin Malone were to use that same tool that Stephen Hawking would, it would actually be dehumanizing with him. It would be lazy for him. I think another category to think through with AI is, is it encouraging our own laziness or is it aiding our creativity? Hmm. For instance, we have wrestled as pastors with sermon writing and we've both kind of clearly said like, we would think it would be pretty dehumanizing to us and our people if we asked chat GPT, write a 3,400 word sermon on this passage to these people. That would be dehumanizing. There's something disingenuous and inauthentic about it, you know, but maybe less so if we just said, Hey, here's a sentence I have. Could you make this sound better? But even in that, there's a degree where, Hey, what if I called you Brad and said, Hey Brad, I'm stuck on this sentence. Mm. Can you help me think through it? So we have to be willing to be in this tension of asking questions about formation questions of degrees, what's good, what's better, what's best, what expands the image of God, what aligns with the image of God, and then what sort of goes against that design in us. I mean, even in your framing there of laziness and creativity, there's all of Western human culture 
since the Industrial Revolution has been significantly influenced and shaped toward viewing ourselves and one another through the lens of like what a human being is, is a productivity machine, right? That we are supposed to produce things. And, you know, John, you and I are Enneagram threes. If that means anything to you, that means that like, we're going to be even more tempted to that. Yeah. I once uh, heard someone say that an Enneagram three living in the United States is like an alcoholic living above a saloon. And (laughs) I think there's something to that. Right. And knowing how technology can tempt not just our affections and shape our affections, but also our worship, our valuing and what we do with those affections. Does the technology redirect our affections toward God or does it absorb them and insist we sacrifice more for its sake? Yeah, That's an idol, right? And so like, here's a really uncomfortable example of where that can go way wrong. If you've been listening to the season, you probably remember the excellent conversation we had with Helen Lewis about her documentary podcast, The The New Gurus. And in that, she talked about how social media and just kind of fan culture has introduced what is called parasocial relationships. And it is this kind of feeling or experience or even an entitlement to feeling friends with someone who has only ever related to you one directionally, who is a celebrity or an influence or someone who you kind of treat and see and view as a best friend or a mentor, even though you may have ever met and they may not know you exist, right? So if that is like a thing, Meta recently said, hold my beer to that and announced what is essentially AI gurus, right? Very recently, like I said, we're recording this in mid-October, so things move fast and maybe this will be old news by the time you hear this, but Meta released these AI personalities and types that have their own Instagram accounts and you can interact with them. You can direct message them and functionally what they have done is create not parasocial relationships, but parasynthetic relationships, right? Mm -hmm. And it is wild. Like there's news and different accounts of interactions coming out with them. And there are so many implications to this that there's no way we can plumb the depths of it. But if you think about how, like John, you and I as pastors, like how many times have you tried to persuade people to stop trying to resolve conflict over text messaging, right? (laughs) If texting has, in a sense, enabled us to not like pick up the phone and picking up the phone has enabled us to not look someone in the eye to resolve conflict with someone, how in the world does that compare with an over-functioning, always reliable, hyper-agreeable AI bot that now in very similar ways it can set norms and expectations for real world relationships. Sheesh. <laughs> Googling something is one thing. Like you can't Google, I don't know what to do in this situation because you can't converse with Google. You can converse with this AI. You can start interacting with an AI that's similar to your mom or your dad and be like, this situation is going on. What should I do? I mean, they're going to respond to you right away. Your friend, if you reach out to them, they might have a really busy job and it may take them a while to get back to you. Or they may be having an even harder day and they may not be emotionally available, right? What in the world is that going to do in terms of how it shapes society's perceptions and expectations around embodied relationships by creating the option that did not exist previously 
of parasynthetic relationships. This is why, right? This is why we're doing this season. And this is why it's important to do what you're describing, John, of slowing down and ask like the means and the ends, right? Does this means flourish humanity either in the content or in the medium of how we're using it? It may in some ways, by the way, it's, it's not going to be just it does or it doesn't flourish. It's going to be in some ways, yes, and in some ways, no, right? Yeah. But we have to have that as a lens. There isn't a silver bullet for this. We have to slow down, like you're saying, ask critical questions, but questions especially around wisdom and formation. Yes. And that is actually where we're headed. As we wind down season two today, and as we look towards season three, we have both come to the conclusion that formation is the next thing that we really want to explore. And by formation, we mean how we're shaped, how we're developed, how we grow as human beings and deepen and mature, not just in terms of technology, but in multiple categories. So we as Christians use the term spiritual formation, and we want to explore that. But we believe spiritual formation can be all encompassing. So not necessarily less than spiritual formation, but we want to look at what does it mean to be formed in the midst of institutions and by institutions? What does masculine and feminine formation look like and how does that happen? What do we need to learn about sexual formation or the knowledge of our faith or civic and political formation? We want to grow in wisdom and we want to explore these things. I think that there's a tendency in our culture to say flourishing comes through throwing off all constraints. And we're really beginning to believe that flourishing comes through being formed. Mm. You know, we've used the example of the trellis and the vine, the trellis being the structure that the vine grows on. And I think a lot of people in our time, because maybe institutions have created too much structure or have failed in the midst of providing structure are throwing off the trellis and saying, we just want to be a vine and we want the freedom to grow wherever we want to. And I think what we're saying is when that happens, it just creates chaos Mm. and there's something beautiful about a vine growing up a trellis. And so we want to use that imagery as we think about season three and ask, how can a vine be formed to grow and flourish to all that it was created to be. And so season three, we're going to be focusing on flourishing through formation. And I'm excited about it. I think it's going to be good. We've got a lot of cool guests lined up. And as opposed to this season where we went deep into one topic (laughs) of artificial intelligence, we're really going to bounce around and cover a lot of different topics, how formation happens through those. That's exciting, man. And we are probably going to be doing just as much verbally processing there as we have here. So stay tuned for all the fun. We'll see you in season three. See you then. Thank you for listening. If you found this episode helpful, text it to a friend. Please take a minute and rate this podcast. Leaving a review helps other people find us and connect. You can send us questions or feedback by emailing us at posteverythingpod at gmail.com. Thank you.